Welcome everyone. We're so excited again because uh, my favorite Joaquin Flores is back. And of course, most of you following him is always excited that he's around. So we'd like to have a, a you know, we'd like to thank really Joaquin for the time that he spends time in his Telegram channel and he spends time with us and with many other podcasters. So for those of you who don't know Joaquin and it's about time to get to know him, he's a brilliant author, analyst, and curator of the New Resistance Telegram channel. And he contributes also to strategic culture. And as I mentioned earlier, he contributes to all of us in every small way and big way in private conversations and in public conversations. So for me, we need um, Joaquin to really be healthy and be present and be active in everything that we do. So, and so welcome Joaquin. And I'm not sure what happened to the rest of my folks, but these things happen and I hope they too are doing well wherever they are. And if they come in, they come in and we'll continue the conversation. And as I mentioned earlier, and I apologize, last time in, in another live stream, I had a power outage. And so these things happen. And all I do is take a deep breath and not panic because it's kind of like a practice for all unexpected things. There you go. Yeah. So, and, 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 and Joaquin really does that a lot when he goes into conversation in anything in the live stream he could be so mellow but you could hear really the energy in his voice a frequency so of truth in his voice so again um why i wanted to really talk about culture because for me when i came from the philippines all i could think of is as long as i know my culture then that will be my foundation and I've always, I've always works for me, meaning from everything from, I'm not just talking about social culture, I'm talking about financial culture, just everything about my being a Filipino, but at the same time, all the, in the, the Philippines has a lot of mixed blood and culture from different races, from Asia, from Europe. So I, I honor all of that, but I said, knowing that I can, hold on my ground and whatever comes my way, I'll be okay, or I will know what to do. And when I get a little confused of what to do, I close my eyes, take a breath, and then think of my culture, <laughs> especially if I'm in the Philippines. So thank, thank you for being here. What I want to start with you, um, uh, outside your greetings now, I like you to greet our audience. Oh, but before that, also let me thank those who are making and creating the memes and posting it in your channel. Okay. Oh, yeah. so, so I want to thank them because I cannot enumerate their names, but please thank you very much. And for forgive me, I'm borrowing your memes and also some video clips. Okay. It's <laughs> all we're all in good. So, and let me start with this. Okay, because uh, you would like this. I like to start with a music that I know it is. Uh, it is one of the favorite music or or musician of Wakil. 
Let's see. Miracle of Life, music by Swedish guitarist. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very good.
Very, very good. Yes, this is like, um, you know, I was I was writing earlier and I mentioned Yingwei Momstein, you know, mm. um, when I was uh, like coming of age, um, for us, it was like a meme at the time, uh, the paradigm that we were being like indoctrinated into was dominated by punk and hip hop and uh, grunge and pop punk and rap. And um, but this was like the music that had preceded us just by like five years. But when you're 15 or 16, that's a very long time. And um, at the time, I had a friend uh, named Mike uh, Miguel, and uh, he would like, uh, um, you know, parody the the time uh, with Yingwei Momstein playing the guitar with that kind of like the scarf like Bach or Mozart with like the hair like Bach or Mozart and they would have like a like a wind machine blowing and he'd be playing the guitar with his foot tapping his hair blowing in the wind with the scarf blowing in the wind with a smoke machine and um but later in life I through, through at beginning I think we were laughing at it but then over the years it began to become like part of something that we really appreciated at first like in an ironic way you know, and that's how memes also work. The thing is that memes work in this way where you go from the ironic to the post ironic to the actual and you and then you're like actually into it. And now I can really appreciate the beauty and um, what you have with Yingwei is that like in the in the two decades before, like we introduced into the Western culture, like long hair, but the long hair was on men and long and long hair on men was like introduced into the culture like through um the the archetype of like the poet um the you know the lyre player the guitar player sort of um in a very peaceful like very i want to say uh like a hippie way yes but there's also other archetypes in history that have long hair in the west you have the Viking warrior, the barbarian. And you also have, you know, from the Renaissance, you have the, you know, the classical musicians, classical everybody really, but we think of classical musicians and also like uh, had long hair, right? And they would tie it up into a bun or whatever. Um, later in life, if they went bald, they would wear a wig, you know, but it was always in this long hair style. And, um, and then, like researchers into the actual history began to establish that those same like uh, French and German barbarians um, that you would see archetypically as warriors in the medieval time or in the even before like in the you know in, in the same times uh, in the classical period uh, in the in terms of uh, uh, Roman period antiquity classical antiquity barbarians with long hair when there was time for a formal event, you know, they would actually tie their hair up in the same way that you saw continued forward, like in the um, in the in the uh, uh, Enlightenment in Europe, in the in the classical uh, Baroque and uh, uh, Rococo movements in aesthetics. People's hairstyles actually very similar. So, um, like in the <clears throat> in the seventies. There was like a, a intelligence cultural operation um, by the CIA 
that's like uh, in Europe, like Gladio and things like this. And they were trying to do um, what you could call like archaeofuturism, archaeofuturism, um, and to kind of transform um, aesthetics that began like as a hippie thing and transform them into a kind of uh, Conan the Barbarian starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. So it's a very interesting, like in that time, you think about Conan, you think about He-Man. I don't know if you remember these, but these were like very popular with kids at the time in the 80s. And they built upon a lot of themes from like a lot of Italian illustrators and artists from the 70s in Italy and Europe that were kind of interested like in the aesthetics of fascism. So it's a very, very strange, you know, the whole thing. And Yingwei kind of brings together like multiple of these themes. You can hear things that are a little bit influenced by like Led Zeppelin, which both was taking upon the hippie, but also adding elements of the pagan and neo-pagan that would like find kind of full blossoming in uh, new right, like uh, quasi or aesthetic fascist movements in Europe in pagan uh, far-right neo-Nazi movements um, by that way through like Led Zeppelin. So very strange. And then you get to like Ying Wei and you've got a lot of this where he actually, if you can say that the Beatles said that, they're, that we're bigger than Jesus, Ying Wei was saying, I'm bigger than Bach, you know? And a lot of Ying Wei's stuff is like taking, it almost sounds like, you know, Glenn Gould doing Bach I mean, the level of genius and, and uh, artistry that Yingwei brings to the guitar is like, it almost sounds like as if Glenn Gold or Bach was playing guitar. So there's like, I've learned to separate like the, what things that was amplifying or what things it was trying to promote or what things, how it was used. Um, like, and, and focus on, the beauty that's in it and what the actual, you know, try to take a walk in the shoes of like these people. And um, yeah, Yingwei, um, he, he's known for his like braggadociousness, you know, he's known for his like overconfidence and his interviews, I think are some of the most hilarious like interviews that you could ever find because he's like basically talking about his own genius, which is like, you know, but it takes it to like, it's, it's very funny, like Larry David almost, but yeah, it's great. I don't really know him, but because I trust what you, you know, post, so I, I will start to follow him or just listen to his music. And and right away, I said, the title of this is Miracle of Life. Because Yes, it's, it's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. He's got like some kind of faster moving pieces as well, like arpeggios from hell. Um, but he definitely was, um, you could say like, he took himself very seriously you know, and, but the way that he presents that taking himself seriously with that level of, um, he's, he's, it's like he's imitating the, um, the pomp and pompousness and ego of like 17th and 18th century lords and monarchs. So he's very, very funny. It's just, I, I, it's a, and beautiful as well. And he's just, his talent, I think is, I think we're going to appreciate like Yingwei Momstein moving forward um, for me, it began as a meme because, um, like I said, I came from the time of like punk and hip hop and we kind of looked at the glam rock or hard rock 
um, as being, you know, like stadium rock, as being like some, you know, uh, like the 80s, you know, it's hard to explain from the position of being a teenager in the early 90s, but you know, it's, it's looking back, it's just, he was truly brilliant. But yeah, that was, thank you for playing that for us. I even had to learn how to say his name. <laughs> yeah, like Yingwei. Yeah, Yingwei, mom's team. Yeah. Okay, so. Yeah, we used to like, we used to just joke with each other and we used to go like, and just like tap our heads like this and just imagine that we had long hair blowing in the wind with like a, like a smoke machine and a fan. But you know, it was like a meme, man. But that's the thing with memes is that they can, they actually, we that and there's a danger in memes too. Fortunately, you know, Momstein is a benign meme, you know, but there's like malignant memes that we can like approach like as humor or making fun of the fact that it's a meme. And then we can kind of get drawn into it. Like a lot of uh a lot of uh anti-Semitic memes, like the guy that has like the big hook nose that's going like this with his hands, like people post that like just because it's funny or ridiculous. Uh, it's almost like they start making fun of anti-Semitism, but then by the end of it, they end up as anti-Semites. So there's like so many things like meme science is like, whoo, that's some potent stuff right there. Okay. Well, since we got that over with, and I think music, music is always good because, you know, most of us in this movement study a lot, read a lot, listen a lot, but then we don't take time. I think many don't take time to just stop and listen to really quality, good music. <laughs> yeah, so true. Yes, there's there's so much out there. Um, we live in a time of novelty and looking at what's going to come out next. And there are like so many genres and subgenres of like music. Uh, you know, I've been through periods in my life when I was only listening to um, like Brazilian uh, sambas from the first generation, like Araiboroso and stuff from like the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. Uh, there was a time that I was only listening to like uh, uh, jump jive, like American uh, rock and blues and jump jive from like the 1940s and early 50s. There was a time in my life that I was only listening to rap and hip hop, but there's like so much stuff that's already been produced. There are lifetimes and lifetimes of music to like get into and find and explore. And they're not only speaking to that artist and not only speaking to a genre, but there's like so many layers of the time and the place and you, and music allows you like, like great works of art, like literature, you're like actually traveling in a way, like through this medium, um, as if it was a novel, as if it was a, a work by, by Michelangelo. Um, it, this, it's something that, that draws you in and it, and it takes you on a journey. And I, and Yingwei is just really brilliant when you think about it in terms of that as well. But yeah, um, there's so thank, much there. Thank you for sharing him to us and his love of music and everything that we do. So it's interesting that um, it's we're just in the month of February, but look what, look what the first meme that I saw already. <laughs> In the first month of 2024, Biden has already bombed Yemen, Iraq, Syria, and Somalia. Wow. Why must? Why do they have to do that? And 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 then how 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 is it that they're really always getting away with it? And at one point, Joaquin, 
you did mention that the it's not really the objective of what happened in Ukraine and Russia is not really intended just for Ukraine, but it is for destroying Europe. Can yes. you help me understand that more? Sure, yes. Um, well, from a, a military and economic perspective, um, and as well, yes, economic, geopolitical, economic, and military perspective, um, the West already understood that uh, China um, was not going to work against Russia, period. So um, also they understood that India um, was never going to follow the oil cap, uh, the movement to put a cap on Russian oil prices. Um, those were already known, like before the conflict began in Ukraine in February, a couple years ago, February 22nd or something, a couple years ago. So um, those are facts that we have to appreciate. Um, this is stuff that they published openly in many different think tanks, Brookings Institute and so forth. So Rand Corporation and so on. Any number of the of the think tanks that are known for taking more sober uh, views within the realm of what's good for their empire, um, those can be different from the more like nonsensical stuff from the more um, ideologically neoconservative think tanks, which even though they also work in the same kind of universe of Washington consensus politics and neoliberal global hegemony, um, they arrive at very fantastical formulations and conclusions and stuff. So, but those people are known as the crazies. Uh, so from the perspective of like rational statehood, they're known as being propagandists, but from the perspective of like rational statehood, they like knew that they're not going to defeat Russia. So um, in other words, like the propaganda that they put out about Russian economy, the efficacy of sanctions, the instability of the so-called Putin regime, intrigues in the Kremlin, uh, secessionism within Russia or whatever, opposition movements, they know that that's malarkey. They know that's malarkey because there are people that are very intelligent and who are um, compartmentalized in ways as to avoid what's called uh, um, Abilene paradox and groupthink. And um, they, um, they have compartmentalized their, their thinking groups such that they also arrive at different conclusions and then can compare them to differ differentiating their own propaganda, their own sphere of beliefs from what is more akin to um, objective reality. So they knew going in that they weren't gonna win there. Um, so that means that going in serves some other purpose. Okay. So then since you know, it serves some other purpose, you can also then begin to look at what is actually happening and how it actually works out. So <clears throat> Ukraine, uh, because of, um, its geography, its culture, its history, its proximity to Russia and its energy relationships and its development. Um, all basically understood to are is as Russia uh, rebuilt and stabilized its economy. It's only natural that Ukraine gets 
more clearly pulled into its sphere of influence in a more solid and indisputable way. So number one, no one disputes that that's the, so, you know, in the scheme of these social constructs, the natural trajectory of things. Um, <clears throat> number two, because it's a natural trajectory of, trajectory of things, um, that's the reality that they're dealing with. So then they just need to figure out like what works from the point of view of the Washington consensus and uh, Atlanticism. They're looking at how can we um, make the best out of this and how can we also make a profit from this. And um, ever, since, uh, ever since the creation of the Euro, um, even though it's very much tied to the petrodollar, and even though it's very much also, you can say, part of the creation of the euro can be traced back to the creation of what was called the euro dollar. So you have the euro dollar, you have a petrodollar, which are forms of the US dollar. And the euro as a currency comes out um, and becomes established in Europe in 1999. But the movement and the organization to create a European Union goes back to like, um, forgive my, my error here, like 1953 or 1956 or thereabouts. So, but it was in the 50s, maybe 1949. But you have Council of Europe and European Union, things like that. And they all kind of developed side by side through the 50s, 60s, 70s. By the 80s and the 70s, they knew they were going to launch the Euro. Um, they scheduled to launch in 1999. They launched it then. Um, and but nevertheless, um, the relationship of the number of euros that the European Central Bank can basically franchise to the banks of the European nation countries to emit euros is nevertheless tied to the to the dollars, to the dollars in circulation. So um, but the degree to which European enterprise and European industrialization post-World War II up until now um, involves European, uh, indigenous European centers of capital concentration, even though there was a general scheme that reinforced transatlantic relationships and the power of the city of London and Wall Street, nevertheless, there was uh, a growing degree of European economic autonomy from the U.S. within the scheme of transatlanticism. So um, the United States, in terms of its its rulers, and we can call the, you know the permanent administration, the financial interests, the cabal, take your pick. They um, to be distinguished from other movements in U.S. leadership, and to be distinguished from the interests of the American people. Um, they saw that with with the European Union, with Europe, that um, since U.S. market interests or uh, finance or IMF or any number of ways, military, that the using the United States as kind of its uh, body, using the United States Army as its body, using uh, the New York Stock Exchange as kind of the 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 uh, the, the thermometer of things, um, they they realize that their power is contracting. So the best option, like logically for them, is to reassert more control over areas where they 
have some or a lot of control. So that's not to say that the US had lost control of Europe, but let's say that after World War II, the United States controlled 95% of the Western European economy. And then through the decades, we're just using numbers that bear no relation to the truth, by the way, just so people can conceptually understand this, okay? I haven't done the research to really look at what degree of the capital flows we can distinguish between indigenous European capital concentration versus transatlantic because there's so many cycles and circles that get complicated with the expansion of the Euro uh, into Eastern Europe and the they basically transatlanticism tried to continue to keep the trilateralism or the transatlantic part of trilateralism enmeshed and like cross tangled. So as to avoid the ability for Europe to, to, to be independent from the US. So, but let's say that, you know, 95 or hundred percent of the economy the day after World War II ended in Western Europe is all being controlled by the US. But slowly, like as Europe rebuilds, Germany rebuilds, France industrializes in ways that it didn't even before, like through the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, now you have like maybe they only control like 65 or 70 percent of Europe or something like this. So um, let's say that they, let's say that before the 2007, 2008, that they control, um, you know, 60 percent or 70 percent of the European economy. Then with that stuff, they asserted like another 10 or 15 percent control. And then uh, with this, they're going to be able to control. They're trying to control the rest. And the way they do that is by making Europe uh, uncompetitive by cutting it off from its source of energy. So we can say like that. And I think we talked about this last time as well, that of the G7 countries, Germany right now is paying 175% of the median cost of energy of G7 countries. So if it's bad for Germany, it's bad for the EU, just so people understand. Like the EU is actually France and Germany, okay? So um, Greece and, and Italy and Spain are like more like subjects of this like Franco-German power. So in many ways, like economically, like the econometrics of the European Union is very much based on the Third Reich of Hitler and the Nazis. And, um, and what they're, and so, just like how uh, you know the stock values of publicly traded German companies uh, during World War II were going up as German victories on the battlefield were being reported back, conquering Bulgaria, conquering Romania, conquering Ukraine, right? This is like increasing the value of, of German companies and the how people are thinking these are going to perform in the future, like. The value is going up more than just the value of what they have, but the idea that this is going to lay the foundation for even future growth in value, like money making, let's say. So um, what Hitler did in the course of like three years or something like this, uh, the European Union took more of a, a frog and boiling water approach. So spread that three years out into a period of like, 10 to 20 years. So the European Union expands into Romania, European Union expands into Bulgaria, 
European Union expands into Poland, Latvia, Lithuania. It's identical to the Nazis going into the Soviet Union, going into the Balkans, etc. So, yes. I was wondering how many of these leaders, European leaders, in the, all those countries are fully aware of, you know, the strategy that they're being imposed on them, or because it's what I'm hearing from you is that although it seems like everything is going down in their economy, but there's also a strategy that they're hoping that this could be a tremendous investment for them, and it becomes a continuous transfer of wealth. That's but right. Like, you know, like and 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 the Russophobia continues. But because Russia is there, so Russia will become the main player to make this change, make this crazy change, evil change. Yes, they're using Russia as a catalyst or like, you know, Russia they're using as like in handball, they're using as the wall, you know. Um, What's bouncing back is to put the ball in play to Europe. And Europe is supposed to F this up. And Europe is effing this up. So the, um, there, are, there are finance ministers in Europe um, in different political parties at different times who understand this. There are, there are economists and econometricists and finance experts in Europe who are also members of political parties that are, have a minority uh, power in government that are not probably part of the ruling coalition, but the but people understand the ideas are out there. Like there are people saying this in Germany, it's AFD, who's many of their politics, I, I, it's hard for me to get right with some of the things that they say, but when you get to the economics of it, like it's undeniable or the issues of migration, it's undeniable that they're making a point there. So, um, so the plan really you can see is is to revassalize Europe. And the way to destroy Europe is to cut it off from uh, from Russia. And um, Europe's best way to, the best thing for Europe would be, okay, yes, you have access to the IMF, but then that development and the way that you can pay back those loans is by cheap, clean burning Russian natural gas. So then that actually, so then your schedule of, in other words, your schedule of payments versus your actual material physical GDP growth, it makes it actually worthwhile. Number two, if the IMF as a monopoly has uncompetitive rates, well, it's almost, it's it's actually, there's no competition if it's a monopoly, but if there's another global lending institution like BRICS, right, then that actually has a a competitive effect for the consumer, meaning the nation state or the bloc, like Europe, in terms of the price of money. So what the what very malign actors in um, primarily Washington and London have concocted is even though in the media sphere it's this war against Russia, they actually understand that the lowest hanging fruit is Europe. Europe doesn't have its own military. The euro is still like 
quasi-dependent on the dollar. The ability to create euros is connected to through, you know, not that many stages of separation. It's connected to the Federal Reserve. Um, and, and other things too. Now, the other part of that with Ukraine itself is important to understand that there is a real war going on. It is not fake. And so with Ukraine, they have a choice. There's, there's Zelensky, give me money. They're sending people to die because these are the Ukrainian men that would be the workers and engineers and teachers and many other professions, mechanics, in a Russian allied Ukraine. So they know they can't win the war, but they can make it as expensive as possible, this inevitable thing that Russia is going to have Ukraine. So by making it as expensive as possible, is they can also, enrich themselves individually even european leaders that are very corrupt acting against the interests of peace and acting against the interests of european development so the europe europe really hit a crisis because conceptually europe is geographically bound europe the eu is a different concept from the imf it's a different concept from brics because it it is rooted in territoriality and con and conceptions of you know of place i mean it, it's that's why people raise questions like can turkey join the eu can georgia join the eu can israel join the eu like what are the limits is the eu the same thing as the is the eu the same thing as the international community minus the a5 countries and minus japan like what is you know what is that right can the, can the eu include russia can the eu include armenia azerbaijan georgia ukraine like these are kind of funny questions and stuff but before romania and bulgaria and these central and eastern balkan states joined the eu the eu still had room to grow which what we're talking about is not necessarily the actual growth, like in terms of real GDP, but the speculative economy. Like we're going to be going into Romania. Just imagine how much money we can make. Well, that's going to be like a, a bubble. When you, you know, but when you actually deal with Romania, oh, it doesn't turn out as profitable as thought. But that bubble allowed a lot of people to make kind of Ponzi scheme money. Right, like pyramid scheme money, like multi-level marketing. So the EU is established on this foundation of a multi-level marketing, which imitates in slow motion the the growth of the Third Reich, and how that, through the speculative economy, empowered the empowered uh, German investment, German capital, and German industry in the Second World War. But how can you do it in a way as to not alert people that this is like a big crisis that's going to come out of it is you do it in very slow motion, like over decades instead of over, you know, 24 or 36 months. So that's the, my reference to the frog and boiling water, you know. So, yeah, this is a great meme. <laughs> and how do 
what are the ways that the young people or you know those who didn't really want i don't believe uh, young people in ukraine wants to be to join the military so but what are the ways that they can avoid it or they've been using to really get away with it like lots of people have been trying to get out of the country a lot of them left with the first wave of refugees when europe first allowed that for them, for the West at that point in time, it was like much more important to have the the um, the propaganda of the deed of showing many people fleeing Ukraine. Um, other ways that men have been avoiding it is by um, getting rid of their bank accounts, getting rid of their cell phones, um, going to live with friends of friends in other places that, that they're not anywhere near. So just to understand what's been happening is that a man um, over the age of 27 or 26, and the, the, the median age is actually more like 45 for reasons that are very, which we have to explain. Um, I think we talked about this on your last episode though, that they're not out of young men but they know that if they target the young men, that they will lose the war because young men are on social media, on Telegram, and the Ukrainian deep state, you know, US propaganda, CIA propaganda is creating a false reality. Uh, Russia doesn't really have a strong reason to contend or to challenge that reality because of its own reasons. But the truth is that most ukrainian young men like 18 to 28 um not only have the same opinion as men in their 40s that they don't want to fight but they're more savvy and they have more access they know how to use twitter they know how they're very much plugged into their phones unlike men that are 20 25 years older in ukraine the thing to understand is that smartphones didn't come to ukraine in a big way until like 2017. Oh, that's so about, yeah, seven or eight years after, or nine years after the West. Uh, same with the Balkans. So the, 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 the impact on culture has been profound. And in some ways you can think of the introduction of the smartphone as a window closing on your ability to raise an army for an unpopular war. Because people see this stuff happening on Telegram. People know that it's not about if you're smart or brave or have enough training. Like artillery will kill you. Artillery will kill you. You can duck and cover and it, the artillery can explode far away from you and kill you. So um, they, that's why they can't conscript young men. So the thing they're trying to do, one of the things they're trying to do to get more soldiers is they lowered the age of conscript. They're trying to lower the age of conscription from like 27 to 26. So now they're gonna go after 26 year olds. But the median age has been 45. But what young men and men are doing to get out of it, they've been paying between four and $10,000 in bribes, either to medical examiners or directly to the recruiters, to the Yes, you can call them recruiters. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting that someone is always making money out of misery. 
Yes. There's always there's always this. I mean, you know, it's like uh, they say a good business to get into is the mortuary business. Oh. Hmm. And um, what's with this image? You know, uh, is this part of? Yeah. So they... this is yeah. This is Molfar. So it was recently uncovered. Yeah, that um, the British Secret Intelligence Service has established its own kill list. So people will know about the one that Ukraine has, that people recently have been talking about, the, the, that Tucker Carlson was added to this Ukrainian kill list, that the SBU has, okay? And that um, on that website, they try to connect it to the U.S. by saying that they're based in Langley, that they're based in Kiev and Langley. Um, that's not likely to be true. This is part of a uh, CIA, SBU um, psychological operation that's trying to convince Ukrainians um, that if they start losing too badly that the Pentagon is going to back them up. This is the CIA misrepresenting the actual policy of the Pentagon. Pentagon and CIA are not friends. Um, so quite some time ago, Lavrov, Russian foreign minister, said that um, the United States is not capable of making agreements, that they're non-agreement capable. And the reason for that is that you can make an agreement with the president, but the Pentagon has a different position or the CIA has a different position. And those organizations are going to do things not at the same time, but at different times at odds with what the president agrees to. So if you make an agreement with the American president, but the Pentagon wants to do this or the CIA wants to do that, how do you make an agreement? Like, who's the head of the CIA? Who's the head of the Pentagon? And how do, they, how do you keep them accountable to the agreement? So the United States is non-agreement capable. And originally, they could afford to do that. And they actually use that as a strength. But in time, you can see that this is a great problem. Now they no longer have the power. Like, think about a manager that's impossible to get a hold of. Well, all you can really do to keep your job is keep doing the things that you're doing. Like they're not responding to your, hey, the bathroom is locked or, hey, I need overtime or I have too many hours or not enough hours. If they don't respond or you don't know what the chain of command is, all you can do is keep working. Right. So that actually worked for the American empire to be non-agreement capable. Very. You can see how that practice evolved and it was working for them. But now in this crisis where they don't have power and they need to be agreement capable, they're non-agreement capable. So they have a big problem. But like, yeah, so Molfar is the UK. And it's and how can the UK be keeping kill lists of Western journalists, Western analysts, people who are British citizens or subjects, I suppose? So it's a very, very, yeah, this was a very big revelation that um People, you know, I guess put together a couple like a month ago or a couple of weeks ago, maybe. But this is a this is a this is a good meme that tells the whole story right there. The okay. British SIS, 
Ukrainian I, SBU? I'm trusting you're not <clears throat> you're not in the you know in the kill list, but it's impossible that they're not eyeing on you and Vanessa and a number of people whom I know and they have been following. Yeah, I mean we've we've been infiltrated by this five eyes uh and been having you know our problems with them undoubtedly uh but yes to the extent that people are 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 not on different kill lists i i not i'm not really sure what that means in terms of like if people who are not on the kill list are targeted um but just because you're not on the kill list doesn't mean that you're not being targeted for other forms of neutralization, uh, deplatforming. Um, obviously, you have defamation campaigns. Uh, there's lots of ways to metaphorically kill people besides killing them, as you know. So, yeah, thank you. And so, I want to go back to what's happening with the kids right now. Let's do it. Yes. In the school and the, the implications of this uh, current events to to the totality of our culture. Yes. So this is the New York Times just a few days ago. Is that February 9th or something? Um, February 2. Yeah. It says, as kids, they thought they were trans. They no longer do. Um, this is happening a lot. And um, there's been a very big pushback against the trans ideology. And there's been very good research out there that the trans ideology was concocted. It was a business model for a couple of people. Um, but not, but it's also more nefarious than that. It's, it's, it was, even though it was those things, the reason that it really took off is because it conforms to a larger, um, crisis in the identity in the West. Um, things which are happening to people as the result of like pollution, um, People, people always experience their own feelings and impulses as natural, even though a lot of these things are being, uh, are, are determined or influenced greatly by uh, our body's regulation and production of hormones. So if you have like uh, pseudoestrogens and different uh, blockers or, or uh, enablers of different hormones that are foreign and are affecting your overall balance of hormones then you're you know different impulses and different ideas are going to come into your head that actually otherwise wouldn't be there in a sense you can say unnatural so we're not saying that they're supernatural but they're not uh these are things that are happening because of toxification and, and pollution and things in our products and plastics and receipt paper and uh toxins in the air and water so now, in it, so then um, another problem has been um, that in wealthy and upper middle class households, um, you have uh, kind of this keeping up with the Joneses thing that goes back to consumerism in like the 1950s. And and um, and part of that keeping up with the Joneses, it used to be things like, oh, um, 
maybe you could even, even though that related to consumerism, it also related to lifestyle and advancing in and advancing in society as symbols of that. So maybe your neighbor gets a Cadillac, you have a Chevy, now you're gonna get a Cadillac, right? Um, oh, your 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 neighbor's kid got into Columbia. Okay, we're gonna make sure our kid gets into Harvard. Okay. Um, but now these things are still there, by the way. But now in addition to that, it's like, oh, uh, their kid is gay. Oh, well, my kid is trans, you know? So it's actually, these are like, become like signs and symbols of education, affluence, which in this period of late capitalism is like the, in this progressive model, it's these lifestyle or medical things that, which are real and happening to people, but they should, we should treat, you know, I might, this is my opinion now that we should treat gender dysphoria as a problem that requires like a solution that doesn't, uh, isn't based in uh, authenticating the problem. So um, we have to, really it's about reversing the damage done or trying to get through the trauma of it and understanding that we've been in that moment victimized by it, but, but without feeling ourselves as like powerless victims, however, that's very important. But to recognize that, you know, this is not an awakening happening here. This is not liberation. These are like symptoms and signs of toxicity because of our reckless consumerism and overproduction of, I would say, you know, in addition to that, they're using this kind of chaos and pollutants to reinforce their agenda. They also, these are things that were very cheap and profitable solutions for them as well along the way. Um, like pesticides in factory farming and things like this uh, in, in agribusiness. And so that was profitable. It wasn't the more expensive way of doing things that also where the goal was simply to destroy people. So what they've done is they've, they've basically, and this is very similar to Soros, and this is very similar to how this decline in the West happened, where they went for the options that were the, the cheapest, and then the, and since those since the cost of doing things cheaply and dangerously is going to be on people, that follows their model of outsourcing or externalizing costs rather. So their whole profit system of cost externalization has had a side product of this, for example, that we're seeing here. But instead of recognizing it as a problem, they they try to pretend that this is also part of progress and also part of solutions. So it's a very complex thing, but they there's elements of planning and elements of um, letting no catastrophe go unprofitable. So what you what what we see obviously there's so much more layers to that. Yeah. You know, it's just really like having an, an illness that there's one symptom, but there's underlying still of that symptom are really sub symptoms, you know, and yes. if we can only see the root of it, 
then maybe we'll be able to find the real solutions. And I'm sure yes. it's, it's always there. And you're always in weaving in actually the solution to all of this from family to community to you know the whole nation. How yeah, we can't blame we can't blame the people that this is happening to. You see what I'm saying? Like we have to understand that even though the 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 ruling class and the system is turning this into a problem for all of us and we're reacting against that as we should, like the people who think that they're trans or the people that have been hoodwinked or conned into this gender ideology, the children and young people, they're they're really victims in this as well. And they're the ones whose bodies have been mutilated through this. And so this is about this, this young woman here, right, thought that she was a boy. Um, and we might assume that she had a double mastectomy. And we might assume that she was taking hormones and began to grow like a mustache and a beard. And um, and they were never, these people, I mean, I'm speaking generally, okay? Um, people have not been happy with the results in this relative to the chances that you're gonna have a bad time with it. The chances are too high that it's not gonna work out for you. And, um, People think that it's going to transform them and they have idealized visions of what themselves as the opposite sex would look like. And it's really, for most people, unobtainable, either cost prohibitive or their age or their bone structure and other things. And then the things that people are doing, most people don't end up passing. Most people end up feeling they look like freaks. They know they look like freaks. They become angry about it. They become aggressive and defensive about it. They've been mutilated, but we have to, we have to, it's almost like a, um, you know, when a person is very ill and they're lashing out at people and they have an illness and a pain and they don't really understand it and they're directing it against the, the wrong people, but they still need to be heard. And we have to then, we have to validate their anger, but then show them that it's not the patriarchy, it's not the cis, gendered heteronormative paradigm uh it's not the that people believe that there's only two genders that's not the problem like you we've been poisoned like we're all in this together and we're all being poisoned in different ways and um this young lady was poisoned in in one way and i've been been poisoned in other ways but the ways that I've been poisoned, like don't manifest or don't show as easily as the ways that she's been poisoned. So it's easy for us to focus on her. So it's like, there's many, many layers in this, in this process that we're in together, but like, it's good that the New York Times published this because they're basically admitting that a lot of this stuff has been an error. The New York Times is a very liberal publication. So this is also important. We were talking about just the other day, how um, Canada's policy of euthanizing the mentally ill. This is directly from Mussolini's Italy and Hitler's Germany. And the, um, the thing that was happening is that um, primary care um, psychiatrists and psychologists were not recommending people to kill themselves. 
So I think this was a very important um, test that right now humanity has passed with flying colors if Canada has to halt this. Because the hope was that in the same way that medical doctors were telling people to get the experimental mRNA gene therapy, that you would have the same phenomenon happen in the psychiatric and clinical setting in, in psychotherapy to recommend people for euthanasia. And um, instead, there was pushback. Thank God. So they've halted it because they couldn't find enough uh, doctors willing to send their patients to be killed by the state simply because they're depressed. You know, it totally turned it on its head. Normally, say, doctor, I'm depressed. I want to kill myself. Like, that's the problem, not the solution. So true, so true. It's, it. it's not easy. I even find when I was still working in ICU, I even find it difficult to, when the family decides that they have to let go um, of a, you know, a long a patient who's been on the ventilator for a long, long time. And then when they have to prescribe, you know, morphine and you can keep giving that and giving it, 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 it isn't easy. So... Yeah, and it's it's really I'm glad there's a pushback, just as there's a pushback of granting more money, right, to, to Ukraine. And that's good. Big time, yes. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So on the left we have uh Taylor Swift, and this is focusing on uh the the 13 meme. Uh, so the what the the um CIA through their media intelligence operations appears to have done is to is to create kind of like a QAnon conspiracy thing for Taylor Swift followers around Taylor Swift. And um, in the way that the QAnon people had like the number 17, uh, Taylor Swift is the number 13. So you can see, I don't know if you can see, but on the cap of that perfume bottle, um, there's kind of a Egyptian kind of thing, kind of a Masonic thing going on with some um, double snake heads, very much like the symbol in Conan the Barbarian of the bad guys in Conan the Barbarian. But then there's a number 13 coming out of it. And people may have seen Taylor Swift um, and, the, you know, talk about, um, you know, then how the number 13 relates to her career and her personal life in like maybe 10 or 15 different ways. Um, the Taylor Swift thing is really, really strange. And um, it, it was, she was captured, you know, by uh, Soros. And uh, the thing is that when it was happening and when it just happened, she publicly complained about it. So, and that was on video and we have that video of her because it was a big statement that she made about how Soros and others bought the rights to her whole catalog without consulting her. These were very similar attacks that 
for example, Michael Jackson was facing. But what happened in the case of Taylor Swift is that um, even though she said that very publicly, um, that outcry and that complaint that she made didn't result in anything changing with the ownership of her catalog. And this made effectively her owned by these people because Taylor Swift has to perform the songs that are already hits, <laughs> the songs that you already know. And those are the songs that are owned by Soros and this group now. So then all of a sudden she comes out very politically as, as, as she's a very strong Biden supporter, which is people will know that this is, um, that uh, Soros is is 100% behind Biden, like 100% everything, uh, Act Blue and everything uh, of the fundraising. There's many, many uh, very good charts and analysis that show the relationship between Democrat fundraising and Soros. So 100% behind Biden. And after Soros takes ownership of Taylor Swift's catalog, even though she complained about it when it happened, within a few months or a year, She's openly promoting Biden, and that's what you have now. Did, did we lose you? Are you still there? Did we have a technical difficulty? I'm going to uh, check and see if you're still there like a different way. So I'm just going to put my mic and camera like on pause for folks. If you still are seeing this live or whatever, I think we're still recording, but we've lost our friend here. So hold on. All right, I guess it's um, we have had a problem. Uh, I got a message here uh, from Grace saying that um, maybe they had some power issues. She lost the platform, but I'm still live. So I will continue for a few more minutes and just talk about our theme here. Um, the weaponization of culture and tradition against us. Well, I would say like, one of the things that that to me that I immediately relate to in the question of the weaponization of tradition and culture against us and, and that broad theme. Oh, there you are. Welcome back to your show. <laughs> Thank um, I took the initiative to proceed like on our main subject theme. And um, is the is the question of like the nuclear family. And um, and how 
we are dealing with the how the concept of the nuclear family um, is misapprehended and how it's being both attacked uh, to make something worse, but also how it's being valorized and romanticized as being something which it never really was. And what do I mean by that? Well, we I think we can understand that it's under attack. And we can see that the nuclear family is under attack by the wrong people for the wrong reasons. And um, they want to see people totally separated from each other and atomized without loved ones, without uh, family, without support, without people that really have their best interests at heart in healthy, in healthy families. Um, who, who, there's no one that's going to love you more than your parents could. There's no potential for that. That doesn't mean that every set of parents love their children sufficiently, or some not at all, and that's very sad. But hypothetically, no one is gonna love you as much as your parents do. So that is one of the main attacks. That's really one of the main reasons that they attack the nuclear family. At the same time, people romanticize the nuclear family and imagine that this was the same form that existed all throughout history. And that's also not true. Like for most of human civilization, we have the extended family. So let me say that with the nuclear family is definitely superior to atomization and everyone being wards of the state or children growing up in orphanages or in single parent homes or in foster care. Those are all disastrous compared to the nuclear family for children and for mothers and fathers. So for those reasons, we should first clarify like what we mean. Like definitely attacks on the nuclear family are coming from very dark places. And in that sense, it should be defended. But we also have to understand that the nuclear family is not something that really predates modernity. It's also a product of early modernity. It's also, a, it's the process that happened with the growth of cities the proliferation of smaller houses and apartment buildings, even in the 19th century. Um, the historical family is a larger extended family. So um, there were in the nuclear family is actually not the human norm historically. And we might not be, let's say, have the evolutionary derived functions or needs to be the most compatible with the nuclear family compared to what had existed for thousands and thousands of years before that. Nevertheless, the, so in the nuclear family, um, there are different trade-offs and um, because of the rapid growth of industry and the creation of new towns and the fact that young families or young people had to pursue the opportunities and leave the towns and villages that they come from, these are all products of modernity. This didn't happen before the industrial age. So when people move far away from their extended families, 
and then they're in these suburbias, okay, you can understand that it would make sense that maybe the woman might feel isolated. It makes sense to understand the woman might feel unfulfilled in a kind of sterilized and role that's cut off from the tradition of the extended family. And um, you can see that there could even be a disbalance of the patriarchal mode over the matriarchal mode. So there's something, there's some essence of, of an aspect, and I have to be very careful in saying this, but there's some element of an aspect through a certain lens that the feminist critique of the nuclear family has something, there's something in it, but not what they're saying it is. It's not what they're saying it is, but they're, they're reaching at something that is there. They just have it misapproximated. They want to go forward to the atomization as the solution. And the bottom line is there there's always a place for each of us. It's wrong. Yes. And so, and it's as you said, it, it's a continuous like process of balance. There's no fixed yes. thing. And right. it's you know, it's per moment to moment, per situation to situation. Definitely. What I wanted to say is that for thousands and tens of thousands of years, people lived in the place that they were from. And in many ways, uh, people were wealthier in terms of they had larger homes. They might be made by hand. They might be a little bit uneven, uh, the home craftsmanship or built by hand, but they were larger in space. And so, and, and, the, and the line between your yard and a village yard or a communities it was sometimes a little bit blurred. But the point is that people lived in close proximity and in, in a way you can say like kind of like Greek apartments, like the Greek style of family apartments where everyone kind of lives in a building in this in a, like a like a quarters in the same building or they live in kind of small houses next to each other that share the same yard, but everyone has, a, everyone has their own door that goes outside. But my point is that grandmothers and aunts and uncles and, grand, and, and grandfathers, and then the parents and the children all lived in close proximity. So, you know, like the, let's say the potential tyranny of the father is going to be checked by, in some ways, his own mother and his wife's mother. You know, because everyone is kind of there. They might not be up your butt the whole time. You have your own quarters and, you know, you know, your bedroom is yours and your house is maybe yours or maybe people live together. But the point is that people lived in conditions of extended family. And um, it was very hard to get away with uh, spousal abuse or things that kind of come that become real issues when, once the young couple live far away and they're sequestered from the historical extended family. So the nuclear family is actually historical aberration in terms of time. But the, the people that are attacking it want to make things worse. And uh, holding on to the nuclear family is not a bad thing. But we have to then, because that's rebuilding. But then now we have to get back in touch with our elders and so forth. So that's what I'm saying, yes. That that picture reminded me of uh, my my half brother really in the Philippines. When the last time I went home, I realized that 
he had this big space. And what he did is he added little rooms with their own little kitchens for all the in family. Um, yes. His, he has five, six, I forgot how many, okay? So then when I went home to visit them and we haven't had lunch, the rice came from this family, the, the soup <laughs> yeah. family. It was so beautiful. And the fish came from this family. I said, wow, you need a grass. So I told my, my brother, Mike, I said, Kuya, that's for elder. You always say a word before the first name in the mm. elder. It's like Tito, right? Uh -huh. Tio. So I said, Kuya, you know, you, you did a great job. <laughs> you know, you, it's so good to, they're all kind of together supporting each other. So when I guess, you know, when you can, that is the best way or when you're not too far away. Because like what, like, like, as you mentioned before, um, in one of your conversation in live stream, that one of one way of depopulation is also forcing people to move to move somewhere, you know, yeah. away, called it because of job, because of so many things, and people don't think that that's depopulation, also. Exactly. Yeah. There's um, ethnic cleansing and depopulation are not just killing people. You can create. Uh, you know, storms, weather conditions, you can flood, you can, you know, destroy a levee and flood people out, you know, um, you can create monopoly conditions of price and people can be priced out. You know, there's many things that can, that are like, once you understand the, the centralized nature of many speculative facets of our economy, how planned a lot of these speculative ventures are, because the people who are planning them is kind of like uh, insider trading, you know. So they like they they're on the they're at the the ground level of the stuff, and they're making the money, and people are being at uh, financially cleansed. They're being financially cleansed from the places that they're from. Like I'm from Los Angeles, you know. Now we can't all be you know facial plastic aesthetic surgeons, but I'd have to be to like afford to live like in the house that I grew up in, which was quite modest at its time, you know? And um, and Los Angeles has just become a place that regular people can no longer live unless they want to live um, really under the, at the at the grace and the whim of, of any landlord or, you know, uh, you can be evicted from most places for no reason. Um, um, once your lease is over, uh, they can give you one month's or two months' notice and you're gone. And then you're, what are you going to do? And people, you know, uh, psychologically for people, uh, just the stress of not having the certainty of where they're going to live in a few months because the landlord can come at any time and say leave or the rent's going up and you can't afford it. They can do either. They can raise the rent to a number you can't afford or they can just tell you to leave. They have that right. It's their property, not yours. So then people are what? They're unstable. How can you, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and in terms of having the, the, the position from which to go, okay, now what is my future? You know, what do I plan to do in 10 years? Like you can't do that if you don't know where you're gonna live in six months or three months. And this is adding stress to people and it's, it lowers functional IQ by 
one or two orders of magnitude to be functioning at that level of stress because the cortisol and being in that fight or flight mode does not allow for creative thinking, for planning, long-term planning, and it really throws people off balance. And it's a big problem that many, many people are facing, especially in the West today. I want to share again another meme, okay? So hang on there. Yeah. Not that one, because we talked about that already. It is. Well, so I kind of want to go back to how people look at Russia again or the Rosophobia thing. Okay. Hang on. Yes, this is show me on this doll. I think. Uh, I think my friend Stefan made this one. Yeah, this was from Working Brother. He said, show me in this doll where Russia touched you. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. Yeah, where Russia hurt you. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because these people have a, this, this Russia derangement syndrome. It's like, it's, uh, we understand the reasons behind it, of course, but it's funny to actually break it down like this. It's a meme. <laughs> This is fantastic. This is a great one. And, and let's talk oh, Texas about by the numbers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And let's talk about what yeah. happened there recently, because you know it's we, you know, some people were really um, inspired, like they had to go to to the border in Texas, or but it seems like it's it's a psyop. So maybe you could enlighten us about that. And well, sure. And, so like, so first of all. Texas recently uh, surpassed California as the eighth largest economy in the world. Um, before that, you would have said California was the seventh largest economy in the world and Texas would have replaced it as the seventh. But remember, the U.S. has fallen behind China now. So China is the largest economy in the world and then the U.S. So that moved down California. And then so Texas replacing California is the eighth instead of the seventh. So that's first of all. So now, now you have China, U.S., and then other countries, like five, seven of them or six of them in between there. And then you have Texas and then California now trails Texas. And um, this is also like the idea of like what would Texas, how would, how would Texas function as an independent nation state? And this is kind of because uh, this is actually, uh, I did a study or I, I did an analysis based upon numerous studies um, 10 years ago um, from data that had been generated between 10 and 14 years ago. And uh, so the numbers have gone even in a more radical direction since then. But in 2013 or 2012, um, 28 or 29% of Texans said that having their druthers, the question was posed that, would you support Texas um, peacefully seceding from the United States? And just under one in three people said yes. And um, what I noted at the time was that this was an organic number that was based upon what was going on inside of people's minds with no um, organized 
movement, no advertising, no propaganda, no, no amplifying or proliferation of the idea. So in this report that I wrote at the time, uh, that may or may not have featured into um, later Russian analysis, um, it was published by a, a Russian think tank. So they were aware of what I was writing and it passed their peer review. And, um, and I said that, I suggested that if something like this were actually being promoted, that that number could double or triple or become a super majority, like over two thirds, like 67%. And those are typically the numbers, you have to get over two thirds of something on a referendum before it's considered like legitimate for something big like this. It's like a super majority or two thirds majority for secession to be considered like by historical norms to be like legit, like 51% doesn't cut it, you know? So um, yeah, at the time it was 29%, but I think now it's, I don't know what the numbers are now or if they say what the number is, but it's definitely gone up like uh, by double digits from there. Um, personally, I don't support like Texas separating from the United States um, in connection with some type of ploy to change what is going to be the natural, what should be the natural outcome of the 2024 election. So this could be being manipulated, even though it seems like maybe a state's rights thing or a conservative thing, or Texas wants to leave because the US has gone too much in a, a radical progressive direction, whatever that means to them. Uh, I know what they mean by it and I understand their concern. I can relate to it for sure, don't misunderstand me. But if it was being weaponized, if this, if this uh, conservative uh, tradition preserving concept of Texas is weaponized back in line with our theme, right, then um, this could actually be used to discount the, the uh, electoral college votes from Texas. And they have a lot of electoral college votes like Winning Texas is important into, you know, winning the election, you know. So um, that is a very big danger that this is, so we'll see what happens with it. But it seems like some of this stuff has like kind of mellowed out a little bit, um, mostly because the intense focus on the Texas crisis and the border crisis even though it appears to be coming from conservative and even MAGA corners of media, there's another layer to this. And that other layer we have to examine and it kind of basically goes like, since it's such a big crisis, we have to pass this budget. Okay, okay, so it has 40 billion or 60 billion for Ukraine, you know what, F it, never mind, give Ukraine the numbers, we gotta secure the border. Like this is already getting crazy now. So they, so that was the gambit really, with this whole hyperventilating about Texas and secession and uh, you know, all the states' rights stuff. The argument, the legal arguments being made by those people on the Texas side are the true and correct legal arguments, don't misunderstand me but it's being weaponized. In other words, the truth is being weaponized against us even. So, you know, maybe in some point in the future, Texas wants to leave. I don't know, that's another question. 
for us all to figure out peacefully, I hope, together. I don't blame them. But um, I think the point was to kind of distract us or redirect our feeling that the intense crisis is so much the border crisis that if we have to, you know, allow this Ukraine to have funding um, in order to secure the borders, then all right, let's do it. And you can see that's exactly what Biden was counting on. And you can, well, not Biden, he doesn't know where he is, but you know, the man in Biden's ear, you can see that that's what team Biden and the controllers behind Biden were trying to game and angle this crisis that way. Um, but the, the uh, other forces in this game, I don't want to say something as cheap or as partisan as House Republicans aren't going to let it happen. That's nonsense. House Republicans are going to do whatever the real handlers of this machine instruct them to do on a certain level. But there's something else going on because there's a fight between the elites. There's a fight between the elites because defeats produce divisions. And no one can, even though as the banana tree has going down, they're able to take as many bananas for themselves, for sure. But they all see the banana tree going down. And that's a defeat. That's a historical defeat. And that's producing divisions. So the thing is that for decades and decades and decades, you know, in the United States, political divisions were more like professional wrestling. It was totally fake and synthesized. And the issues are fake non-issues that still exist today. And they keep trying to revive whether it's culture wars, whether it's whatever it is, they keep trying to make something else the issue. Uh, and not that those things aren't issues. And sometimes they're super important issues. And that's what's so troubling about it. But they weaponize our own values into a politics that on the face of it supports those values, but at the expense of greater, let's say, geopolitical crisis, or broad economic crisis globally. So, um, you know, things like abortion, I'm glad are resolved because now that's not really gonna be an issue for a lot of people. It's hard to divide people over that because now you're looking at something else. So now it's the next issue. Um, back to the meme, not that you have to show it, but the one about the New York Times and people regretting that they've transitioned, this is huge. This is a this marks a very big shift in a in the in the process of healing. Um, what had happened? Imagine you're a parent that had been pulled into the gender ideology, and you're doing it for, you know, virtue signaling reasons, which is the new keeping up with the Joneses, as we've been explaining. So the new keeping up with the Joneses is keeping up with virtue signaling, and imagine you're a parent who had chemically castrated and deformed and put surgeries on your children that have harmed them and maybe even destroyed their lives, probably destroyed their lives. Your own parents did that. So these parents confronted with either accepting that they've done something wrong or doubling down on the belief system that led to it. Unfortunately, many parents are gonna double down on the belief system that led to it. So we're not just up against the gender ideology, now we're up against basically people not being able to process what they've done. And those people are going to be rock solid on this gender ideology side of transhumanism and the transgender story. Because now to admit that they're wrong 
isn't just that we're losing an argument. It isn't just orange man was right or something like this. Now it's like, this means, oh my God, this means that I'm responsible for but butchering my children. So with the New, York, the New York Times doing this is very weird and very interesting because mind you, this is the newspaper that had been championing this stuff for the past 10 years. So there's something going on and it's, I, I, I'm gonna keep analyzing it and trying to understand you know, who wrote that, why that was published and things like that. But many possibilities now exist. Thank you for sharing all those thoughts because I think it's very clear. You know, for me, I, it's clear. So I hope families and parents and grandparents are listening. So um, I want to add this to. Can you speak more on that as well? Because you know, for me, that also has an implication on culture. Yes. Yes. So. Um... Parts of Finland were before part of the Russian Empire. And uh, there's a, a, a Russian artist uh, who was born in what was then Russia, named Ilya Repin. Um, but now the territory is Finland. <laughs> so they're trying to say that he's Finnish and they're, and they're stripping him of, of his Russian his Russian nationality. They're stripped. They're saying he wasn't Russian. They're saying he was Finnish. And um, this is like, uh, this is a very unfortunate trend that's been happening for a while. Um, you know, uh, like in Turkey, which the people, the, 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 the ethnic identity of the modern Turkish state derives from, uh, from human groups and warrior human groups um, that came into the Anatolian Peninsula like after the 8th and 9th and 10th centuries AD and didn't begin to really form a state like in the interior of what was really known as just Anatolia at the time and in the west probably might have even still been known as Lycia um, where you would have the Pergamon and uh, Pergamese civilization, Lycian civilization, Greek civilization in Anatolia and Western Anatolia. So like, but today it's Turkey, but it's only been Turkey since, you know, arguably the 1300s or something like this, 1200s, 1300s. You had the Seljuks really, are the first proto-Turkish stake is the, the Seljuks. So, but when you're looking at classical antiquity and ruins of Romans and Greeks and Pergamese in Turkey, like they're not Turkish ruins, you see, like it's today it's Turkey, but they're not Turkish ruins. But if you go to, you know, museums that have gotten the mean end of threatening phone calls from the Turkish consulate or something, um, you go into England, into museums and you see antiquities, which by the way, the English also shouldn't have, <laughs> but they're classical antiquities that probably belong in Turkey but to be represented as Greek antiquity or Lycian antiquity or Roman antiquity or Pergamese antiquity. And um, the Turks might be doing that, might do the same thing in Turkey, but what they, the trade-off has been, okay, this stolen and looted property, which the British stole from Turkey, you can keep it in your museum, but call it Turkish, you see? So uh, that's very similar to this. 
also you have with uh, Nikola Tesla is another one. Um, where he was born is now called Croatia, right? But the lands that Serbs and Croats lived in, in a kind of a very checkerboard way, by the way, um, was under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, but Tesla was Serbian uh, from a Serbian Orthodox family, etc. So, um, but there's been attempts to recast him as Austro-Hungarian, Austrian, uh, Croatian, like anything but Serbian. There's for some reason there's some thing you know Hitler specifically bombed in in Belgrade the uh, National Museum of Serbian Antiquities. Um, the population of modern Eastern Germany is a, um, were uh, peoples known as uh, uh, Belosorbians and Belocroats, meaning that the Serbo-Croatian people, which were probably one, at one point, at least in Poland and East Germany, it's on the territory of, East Ger of Eastern Germany today, in Germany. The language is closest to Polish as opposed to Serbian or Croatian, same thing, but they're called Belosorbians and Belocroatians. And narratively, they then migrated south into the Balkans or they existed in both places at once and they're autochthonic to both places. There's multiple hypotheses which all float fine, fine. But what's consistent is that the um, Hitler was bent on erasing the Slavic history of Germany. Um, probably more properly, the Germans are from the north and from the west of Germany. Like what you think of as Germans in the Teutonic or uh, Tudesh way, uh, in the sense of a Nordic people, those Germans are from the north and northwest, and the east is uh, historically Slavic. So it's, I also pointed out that it's interesting how geopolitically, after World War II, East Germany falls back into the sphere of the Slavic realm in the USSR. But Hitler in the World War II was definitely, they were really, they had a whole thing about seizing historical pieces and traveling around the world and, and finding things that reinforce their views and capturing things and destroying things that didn't reinforce their views. So yeah, Hitler bombed the Serbian uh, National Museum of, of, of History. And this was like books that only had one copy, you know, like behind a glass case with like the lights on it and stuff. This is gone for all history now. So um, yeah, there's lots of resetism going on for a long time. A lot of, you know, uh, destroying history and recasting people as being of one nationality that were of another and things like this. Very strange reasoning for it too. Let me share you this video clip, okay? Because this would be interesting too.
did that really yeah, take place? Is... <laughs> did that really take place in uh, Guatemala? Yes, that's the story. So this is in Guatemala. This is definitely a story from the 21st century. So it's there's like I don't and I don't really know the story behind it. So I can only say that I, I know that from what I hear, I, I can't I don't know. I mean, I'm fairly certain because most of my commenters and stuff are, are right or lead us in the right direction. Very good group of commenters and people who subscribe to the channel. And people are saying that this is like a sect of Orthodox Jewish people that began to squat in Guatemala, just started with a tent in the wilderness and um, as as settler colonists in Guatemala. And um, so um, on the one hand, they're probably not Zionists, right? But on the other hand, they just sort of try to make their own society there. But then you also have like, um, um, I don't know if they're Muslim immigrants. I don't know if they're converts to Islam in Guatemala and are taking it extremely seriously. And I don't know if those are Guatemalan Muslim women in burqas, or I don't know if those are women from the Middle East that have moved to Guatemala, but you, it's this crazy, and it's, you got the Guatemalan police there and they're in the wilderness. Like, so you've got these women in burqas walking by and you've got these, uh, you know, you've got these Orthodox Jews in their uh, Hasids and they're like mad about something. And I don't even know what they're mad about, you know, but it's just, uh, it just, something that would not have been possible like at any other time in history, but now, you know, so that's why I shared it. Cause it's just absurd. It was just a funny imagery of life today. You know, I have no idea what was going on or who was in the right or who was in the wrong, if that was the story, but it's uh, just, it's <laughs> only now can we see that. There was a chant of China, China, China. <laughs> yeah. In the video. It's like that's so strange. Yeah, it's like it's just absurd. I, I have no idea what it is. Um, but I guess the story with the I, I don't know where the Muslims come from, but apparently the Orthodox gentlemen were there and they had been growing their community in the wilderness and they had been trying to purchase the police to look the other way or to like get some more official recognition for their settlement and stuff like that. And then they felt that these Muslim women walking through. I mean, I don't even know what I just it's I would love for, to get the I'm sure on Reddit or something. There's like the whole story, but it's just I shared it because it was ludicrous. OK, this one for fun. Also, we'll have a little laughter. Every pore vibrated. It was almost clear. Yes, yes, yes. 
Michael Marshall? <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> I went out to face the world again. Wiser. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so this was about the the Tucker. This was about all the hype behind the Tucker Carlson interview that's going to drop tonight or tomorrow for some of us on the other side of the planet um, with Putin. And it's being hyped so much uh, as if there's something that Tucker Carlson is going to get Putin to say that we, you know, haven't been hearing from Putin this whole time, like because the Internet exists. But it's like uh, it's funny because it's but it will. There, there's going to be people who see it for sure, you know, who had no act who, for whatever reason follow Carlson, but haven't been up with Putin's reasons for the war or whatever. But I was making fun of like if to me, it's funny because it was so much hype and it's going to be like, what's it going to say is, you know, be sure to follow Tucker Carlson, you know, on on Twitter, right? On X, right? Something like that is basically what that boils. So this is, uh, yeah. What are they saying? I can't read it. Oh, okay. Hold on. Let me... Uh... At, at the beginning, it says uh, the Tucker Carlson, it's just an exclusive interview with President Vladimir Putin in Moscow, partial transcript released. And oh, yes, yes, I've seen I've seen uh, people posting this. Yeah, yeah, it could be it could be accurate. I, I have no idea. I guess we're going to find out. But um, what do we says, have here? It says Tucker Carlson, Vladimir Putin interview is an existential threat to status quo globalist war. Well, that's the be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. And this was shared. I saw this also in the Substack of Celia Farber, but she was questioning because there seemed to be no reliable resources just posted at the state of the nation. But, you know. We're not too sure of. Yeah, we it's it's it very well could easily be, you know, the the transcript from the interview. Like I did try to read it and I noticed that it started and or there was some questions out of order and then I like repeat it again, which which doesn't mean it's an error. In fact, it seems to be like as if they actually had access to what people are going to see. Because sometimes there's like the preview or the thing that they air before a break and that has different snippets of different parts of the interview and then the whole interview. Because I noticed that in that transcript, there was things that repeated, but then the way they repeated was out of order. So I thought maybe if it is authentic, then that would be why. Because sometimes in an edit, you would might show highlights of the interview and then later you actually have the whole interview in the you know correct order so i don't know yeah but just, um just like what you've been saying all all along even in uh, you know every time you speak to the audience or you write something you we always have to slow down with our response or reaction i guess don't react but kind of like really in everything yes you never know yeah, sometimes we have to apply like a 24-hour rule. Sometimes it's like a 72-hour rule. But it's, uh, you know, the, the thing is that like it's the social media environment or like on Twitter or Telegram, it kind of like expects people to be on their toes and kind of expects there's kind of a an economy 
or an ecosystem of needing to like, you know, get ahead of the curve and say something before anyone else does or to say it first or something like that, which is natural and it can be healthy, but it can also violate, you know, the need to take time to really pause and let's see what happens and plays out. You know, it's, 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 uh, sometimes it's better to be right than to be first, you know? Yeah, and uh, again, we're almost to, to the end, but I just want one more video clip because this also refers to censorship and our, what's going on with our culture. Okay, let's see. So that was from the stage to prison. Yes, this is uh so he was like asked um right earlier that day or the day before the award um, to support Biden. And he said, no, you know, like, because uh, for them, it's it's important that Trump loses, you know, and he's being asked to support Biden. Now he doesn't support Trump, but his he's, he, he's saying there is no reason for him or for uh, people. And I guess he might be speaking in some way for black people or his opinion or him personally, um, there's no reason to support Biden. Like this is someone that, um, you know, he's only, only thing that Biden is, is existing on is that he's not Trump, which is, which it doesn't address the issues that people, um, who in the Democrat party have been telling black people to vote for Democrats to, to pursue, you know, interests against uh, discrimination to pursue against historical injustices and things. And there have been many opportunities for Biden to do this. He's been president for almost, you know, three years now, over three years now. And there's been ample opportunity to, to do um, prison reform and things like this. Like you still have um, in, in the United States, um, black people, uh, for no other reason that, than that they are black. And this is, you can divide, you can separate recidivism, you can separate prior arrests, like you can do real correct study and compare true apples to apples between two convicts. And the only difference between them is, ra is, is race. And on average, black people are getting heavier sentences. And so when people respond to that, like, oh, yes, but they have more prior arrests or they have more. Again, we're talking about two individuals on average comparing apples to apples. So this is not. A, so if if in the cohort or in the control group means that you don't have prior arrests. Right. In the control means that you don't have. So you're comparing two people with the same exact background, maybe the same the same exact charges. Right. And the only difference is being race and their sentences are heavier, you yeah. see. And and all that Biden has to do is address that, you know, 
And uh, Trump began to address that, I think insufficiently, I think at the end, but at least it was out there and it began to be addressed. Some can say that was to, to win the black vote. Well, okay, fine, that's what politicians do. What has Biden done to win the black vote? Nothing. Uh, also, this idea that you know black people vote to release people from prison is also asinine. I mean, black people don't are not criminals as a group, you know, but it is an issue that affects black Americans disproportionately. The uh, American uh, prison industrial complex, and um, and it's also true that in the Trump administration, uh, this initiative, um, one of strangely, strangely. This is something that um, that uh, that Kim Kardashian and her and her then husband Kanye were were raising, you know, and uh, and Kanye met with Trump around these things, and there there was there were big moves in this direction. They did actually begin comprehensive prison reform. There was a there was many thousands of people that were released that had um, unfair sentences during the Trump administration. So um, there had been substantive work in that direction, but I, again, you know, four years, th this is something that's gonna take longer to resolve, but the longer that we have people like Biden in there, the longer it's gonna take to resolve, you see? And it's just disgusting the way that people have been told that, um, that Republicans represent white people and Democrats represent people of color. And it's just, it's just not true. Um, it's, there, it's, it's, simply, it's simply a fiction that Democrats use to convince their real base. The real base of Democrats are affluent um, people, generally over the age of 50 or 60 that are in the, upper middle class, which means that you're multimillionaires, just to understand. But the poorest people in the demographic that the Biden administration is targeting have a combined family income of about 300,000 a year and up. That's the, that's the lowest economic category that's truly appealing to what the Biden and the Democrat, the DNC is targeting their messaging at. So for them, to the extent that maybe they have a guilt complex about their status or the extent that they're the, that they were that they're highly paid in one thing but they were indoctrinated in university about the best way to solve race or inequality issues in the United States for them it's all about it's all good as long as you're talking about it they don't need to see results because they live in a gated community and they're going to think that that Biden is somehow a progressive candidate just because he's not Trump, so we have a very, very messed up political culture, and uh, and and the and the discourse on on the official DNC side is totally marketing towards um, the very affluent um, upper middle class and above Americans, and and the way that they manage that, and the way that we talked about keeping up with the Joneses, we talked about how virtue signaling is the new keeping up with the Joneses. So for them to be able to say, oh, the NAACP or these labor unions that represent a lot of black people or this group of blacks support Biden, for them that's enough to say like, okay, I'm on the good guy's side. Even though when you look at the policies, even though when you look at the real things, it's like there's been no real good positive changes for black folks in America 
under Biden period. That's what that whole fiasco was about. So then later, after he, he does get the award and then after they arrest him. <laughs> so we don't know if those were connected or not, but it was, you know, certainly catastrophic for him. So before I I chose another outro, I call it in my outro music, but before okay. that, why don't you invite them to your um Twitter, if that's what you want. And although yes. the picture here says zero following, zero followers, but that was when he, when Joaquin just put it up. Now there's many hundreds of followers there. So. Yeah, um, I invite folks to follow me on X, Twitter. Um, I, I don't know how it came, how, why Twitter changed to X, but <laughs> me becoming X like happened like a whole year, a year and a half or two before Twitter changed to X, so I, I don't, you know, but yeah, it's um, XF is now on X, and um, and I'm I'm interacting more there now, I'm trying to get some of my eggs out of one basket and stuff like that, and just sort of make sure because I can see that there's more censorship coming, and I can see even uh, Telegram has like been censoring and removing followers and playing a lot of games and. Uh, um, most of my American subscribers can no longer see my Telegram channel. Uh, there's two ways to have Telegram, just for folks to understand. Um, if you're getting it from the Apple iOS, uh, Apple, what's it called, Apple Store, or if you're getting it from the Google Play, my channel is not visible on Telegram. You can't even go to it. Um, you have to download Telegram directly from the Telegram website which is kind of onerous for a lot of people in terms of ease of use or in intuitive way that they use their phones. Um, and so, yeah, I have probably uh, 17 to 20,000 people that can't even see my Telegram channel anymore. So that to me tells me that it's a very problematic uh, platform. And um, I've been encouraged by the, the changes at, at Twitter, but my old account will not be restored. And I had uh, maybe, you know, two, just under a quarter million followers, maybe 218, 219,000 followers when I lost my account under Jack Dorsey. And I have no intention or no time in life or concern to rebuild that, it's, That's but I do have to diversify. So please folks, if you wanna follow me on Twitter, I am there. And I'm going to be starting and getting more, at least like one or two of my posts. And I'm going to have original stuff there that's not on Telegram as well. Um, I plan to kind of network and kind of get back into the scheme of things. It really actually also has to do with uh, fatherhood and how like small my children have been. And they're kind of getting to the age now. My youngest, my youngest son is uh, a year and a half. And my daughter is like three and a half. And now they're able to kind of play when they're at home and it's less stress for me, less stress for my wife. And I'm able to kind of get back more into uh, social media networking and, and things like that. Um, thank you for having me on your show once again, Grace. It's been truly an honor. And I love the questions that you ask and the platform that you help provide and the access that it provides people. Because uh, I don't do a lot of my own video material and sometimes people just wonder if i'm a voice talking in the phone or if i like still exist or if i was in a horrible car accident or something like that uh i'm okay here i am uh 
and um, and thank you so much. No, I, I truly appreciate it, and you know, and I'm sure. No, I can feel everyone really appreciates you. Okay, so you do take care of your family first and foremost, but let's listen to another music that you love. Yes. It's playing now. Let's see. Let's play it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, everyone, thank you so much for being with us. Don't forget to share. <laughs> Otra vez sin decir nada de mí. If you guys want to start dancing, voy pasando por Me voy procurando sin hallar. Puede ser que te vuelva yo a encontrar. Otra vez, hora que yo te sueño. So if you have to dance this, this is great yeah, I mean, it's Latin jazz, you know, it's uh, got its own rhythm. Yeah, I love the horns. I love the wall of sound. Otra vez voy pasando por ahí, otra vez con mi cara tan feliz. Si a tu amor yo llegué, porque llegué, de tu amor yo salí, porque salí. Oh, otra vez voy pasando por ahí, otra vez con mi cara tan feliz. Si a tu amor yo llegué porque llegué De tu amor yo salí porque salí La 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 It's just beautiful man Just a, it's, it's otherworldly It just takes you to another place Yeah, then we get this. This is like more clear, you know. Yeah, it changes, you know. It's like, it's very hard to dance. This is definitely like, people dance to it, but this is like very much, you have to be very uh, comfortable dancing to Latin jazz. So you're going to have, of course, like salsa aspects of merengue and things like this, but in terms of your dance, but it's uh, very, very like. Uh, the, the sound and the, the production like uh, that got that uh, wall of sound like uh, Phil Spector had with the Beatles and I love the um, the fullness of it and it and it, it's progressive like it changes it tells a story you know 
está cambiando la escena, negro la ya bajo el telón, mira, y comienza otra novela. Llegué porque llegué, y sabe por qué salí, vamos cuando pueda mal, sigo andando por ahí. God, I love the violin there. It's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. The horn, it's like, it's regal, you know, there's, there's a royalty in there, really. Wow. Yes. Perfect. Beautiful. Thank you for having me. Thank Great you. outro. And please, to our, all our audience and Joaquin's followers, please don't forget to share. And again, do your part, do your study. Okay. Because as you see, so much to learn. Thank you. Yes. And hugs to all. Hugs to you, Joaquin, and to your Thank family. You. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. For you, all your generous time and oh, money. thank you, thank you for having me. Take care. Bye.